don't know about you, but I don't remember much from the first five years of my life. But in the next five years or so, I was preoccupied with this one big idea. I would leave Korea and move to the United States. My father was already here in the Baltimore area, preparing the way. So I got myself ready for immigration. I watched MacGyver and Knight Rider dubbed in Korean. I can still hum the theme songs. I listened to old English folk songs like Long, Long Ago, Old MacDonald Had a Farm. Now, let's say you knew me back then. How would you have prepared me for life here? Perhaps after I flew from Seoul to JFK Airport, where I had a layover, you could have taken me to the harbor and shown me the Statue of Liberty. Maybe you'd explain what's inscribed on the tablet, July 4, 1776, the nation's birthday. The broken shackles and chains that symbolized the abolition of slavery. You could read me a portion of Emma Lazarus's poem, New Colossus, inscribed at the statue's base. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. With this icon, you could teach me a lot about what it means to be an American, the liberty it values. Now, if someone asked you for some symbol of Christianity, what would it be? Of course, the cross is the obvious answer. But there may be something closer to Lady Liberty. Except that ours would not be a mythological figure, but a real woman from the book of Genesis. We'll talk about her in today's passage. But first, here's a quick review of Paul's letter to the Galatians. You got the salutation in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 1. The thesis statement in verses 6 to 10. And then for the rest of the book, many commentators observe three major sections from chapter 1, verse 11 to the end of chapter 2. Paul gets personal and defends the origins of the gospel. In chapters 3 and 4, the apostle gets doctrinal and defends the contents of the gospel. Finally, from chapter 5 to nearly the end of chapter 6, Paul gets practical and defends the freedom in the gospel. So today we're finishing up that middle section the doctrinal defense of the gospel and its contents. Here we see how for the sake of the Galatians, Paul utilizes every tool from his toolbox. He reminded them of how they began their journey of faith in the spirit, how they left behind weak and beggarly elements. He pulls at their heartstrings, those good old days when they welcomed him as he preached the gospel to them at first. He spoke in the manner of men, using familiar images and concepts such as contracts, baptism, adoption, childbirth. And of course, there's Paul's method of proof texting, and we should appreciate the Apostle most for this. As you read his works, note all the helpful quotation marks in the text and the cross-references in the notes if you have them. They range from extensive citations to quick allusions 
If Paul's going to argue, he'll argue according to the scriptures. And by doing so, he proves that God's salvation and blessings were planned in advance and executed through Jesus. Paul again turns to scriptures to make his point in today's passage, except this time he's not citing scripture in rapid succession. He's going to take us to Genesis, take his time, and use some major characters in the story of Abraham to defend the gospel of liberty. So let's turn to Galatians 4, 21 to 31 first. And if you're using a pew Bible, and feel free to take one with you if you don't have a Bible at home. If you're using the pew Bible, we're at Galatians 4, 21 to 20, uh, 31, and that's in page 812. 812. Galatians 4, 21 to 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who, do, who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free As usual, I'll start with some structural observations. Verse 21 binds the entire passage together, inviting the Galatians and us to look into the scriptures. So it should not surprise us to see that all important phrase, for it is written, is in verse 22 and verse 27, and sets apart verses 21 and 20, 21 to 27 as a distinct section. Here, Paul builds up an argument. He starts with the simple story of Sarah and Hagar from Genesis. By the time we reach the end of the section, we're at Isaiah 54. There's a joyful turnaround after a sorrowful beginning for the free woman. And then we see in verse 28 and 31, Paul's address to the Galatians as brethren. These two verses are like the delicious sandwich bread that Linda Custer brings every Sunday. And in between 28 and 31 are the meaty portions, 29 and 30. And if the first section emphasizes the joyful end of our journey, the second section highlights our need to persevere and wait for God's judgment 
So put these two together, and I see two practical outcomes of living as sons and daughters of liberty. One, rejoice in our freedom as we're heaven-bound. Rejoice in our freedom as we're heaven-bound. And that's in verses 21 to 27. Two, endure persecution from the law-bound. Endure persecution from the law-bound. That's verses 28 to 31. If you just want to break it down to two words, is rejoice and endure. First, rejoice in our freedom as we're heaven-bound. Verse 21 sets the tone. Let me read it again. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Note that Paul is using the word law broadly to refer to the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible written by Moses. And if you want to read the Levitical law, you have to get through the story of Genesis. And if the Galatians read through it, they see it anticipates that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and preach the gospel to Abraham beforehand. If someone believes in Moses, he or she would believe in Christ, for he wrote about Christ. The law itself bears witness to righteousness apart from the law. The law, far from opposing the gospel of liberty, actually promotes and defends it. So Paul patiently brings us back into the earlier pages of the Bible, what we know as the Old Testament, and he's going to stick with the story of Abraham. Abraham is very important to Paul in this letter. His name appears nine times, just as it appears nine times in Romans. But remember, Galatians is merely six chapters, while Romans 16. So you could argue that Abraham's more important in Galatians. And up to this point, we've been talking positively about the patriarch, the faith of Abraham, the blessing of Abraham, the seed of Abraham. But this time, we're turning to a low point in his life. Now, to be sure, it's still true what Romans 4, 17 to 18 says. Abraham believed God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. It's still true that Abraham, contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken to him. But there is some weakness in his relationship with God. Abraham wasn't perfect. There's room for growth. And the Bible doesn't shy away from Abraham's sins, even if he is a model of faith. Paul summarizes the story that begins in Genesis 16. Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. This isn't a bright spot in Abraham's story. This is a blight, a stain on his story. So what happened exactly? Was Abraham a polygamist? Did he cheat on Sarah? So here's what happened. Abraham had no heir by blood and Sarah was barren. They were both old. They felt like they were running out of time. 
Yet God had promised that someone from Abraham's own body will be his heir, and his descendants will be numerous as the stars of the sky. And I think for the most part, Abraham and Sarah were on the same page with God and with each other. Some of you know from your studies in 1 Peter that Sarah is among those holy women who trusted in God. And she was submissive to her husband, Abraham's faithful leadership. But Sarah had her moments of weakness too. She grew tired of waiting. She lost patience one day and said this to her husband, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. It was pregnancy by proxy. It was the old-fashioned surrogacy through natural insemination. But this was not what God wanted. Yes, it's true, God works supernaturally outside of the box of human reason. But he also wants to work inside the box within the limits of biblical marriage. He intended to use the marriage covenant to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. It would be one son, Isaac, through Abraham's one wife, Sarah. Abraham, however, listened to Sarah and did as she asked. The maid was an Egyptian named Hagar, and she became pregnant according to Sarah's plan. Remember, which is not God's plan. This was a natural solution that conflicted with the supernatural promise. Consequences followed. There arose tensions between Sarah and Hagar. Hagar, once a mere servant, now felt superior to her mistress. After all, she's carrying Abraham's child, and if a son, the heir apparent. Sarah felt threatened. She complained to her husband who told her, not my problem, basically. She treated Hagar so harshly that she ran away. But the angel of the Lord met her and told her to return and submit to Sarah. The maidservant will bear a son for Abraham, and he'll be great and multiply. Hagar eventually gave birth to a male child, and his name was Ishmael. Fast forward 14 years to Genesis 21. Abraham's about to be 100 years old, and Sarah's around 90. Finally, God's promises with all his best intentions come to fruition. So this is how Abraham ended up with two sons, one by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. In Galatians 4.23, when Paul says Ishmael was born according to the flesh, he doesn't mean that Ishmael was inferior as a person. Paul simply saying that Ishmael was born via the power of natural production. Nothing extraordinary about it. Isaac, in contrast, was born because God said it would happen, even if Sarah's womb was dead. God promised, and God delivered on his promise. I'm going to save the rest of the Genesis story for later. For now, we have enough to move on to Galatians 4, 24. It begins with him saying which things are symbolic. What does Paul mean here? Let me stop to make four comments about this phrase, which things are symbolic. 
First, when Paul says which things are symbolic, he's not saying Genesis is fiction. He's not saying the story of Abraham is a made-up story. On the first verse of Genesis 1 to the last verse of Genesis 50, we're reading history. And you can read the contents plainly and literally. Creation out of nothing in six 24-hour days. Adam as the first man and Eve as the first woman. The fall of humanity, the universal flood of the entire world, and the story of Abraham and his family, they're all true accounts. Second comment, what Paul really means when he says which things are symbolic is this. The symbolic meaning builds upon or top of, on top of the foundational literal meaning. He's not saying, so he is saying that not only are Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, and Isaac real people, they are real people, they represent more than themselves. Paul presupposes and starts with their historical existence, but then he goes on further to their lasting significance. We know from everyday experience that a person can be both historical and symbolic. A man or a woman can be both individuals and epitomes. Feeling patriotic today. So, for example, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln were not only U.S. presidents, they're symbols, right? Symbols of our country and its values. Courage, liberty, equality. Here's a third comment about the symbolic things. It's safest to assume that the plain and the literal meaning is the best meaning. The plain and the literal meaning is the best meaning. Now you may wonder, as you do your own Bible reading and devotions, can I do what Paul did here? Can I look for symbols in the Old Testament? Maybe there's someone else who's a symbol. Perhaps that census number or the specific temple furniture foreshadows some New Testament reality. Our imagination and hunch can go wild here. Some people make a living off of some arcane, vague, innovative ways of looking at the familiar passages. But it's what's most obvious and commonsensical that's most powerful. The Bible was written in the language of commoners to be read for and read by them. The very fact that Paul has to signal to his audience in verse 24 that things are symbolic tips us off. This is not the way Paul normally reads scriptures. So unless there are major clues in context, we should read the passages plainly and literally. Here's the fourth comment about symbols in the Bible. Let scriptures interpret scriptures. Let scriptures interpret scriptures. So this is another safety principle, like the previous one. Here's where we talk about plenary inspiration. Plenary inspiration means all parts of the Bible in the original languages are from God's mouth. So practically speaking, there's a unity of purpose in the book. One part of the Bible may shed light on another part of the Bible. I am most confident about some symbol when the spirit-inspired author specifically says someone or something is a symbol. 
I'm less confident when the authors do not say anything like that. So pay attention. Pay close attention to words like type in Romans 5.14 and shadow in Colossians 2.17. Okay, that's enough commentary about symbols. So let's see how Paul actually uses them. Sarah the free woman and Hagar the bondwoman represent two covenants, the old and the new. Hagar is like the covenant of Moses. It originates from Mount Sinai in Arabia. It's perpetuated in the earthly Jerusalem by those zealous for the law. Hagar and that city correspond to bondage as the one under the law is under a curse. Remember, curses everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. We saw that back in chapter 3, verse 10. But God sent his son, their Messiah, to die at Jerusalem and redeem those under the law by becoming a curse for them. Yet the dwellers and the rulers of that city rejected him. They will not accept that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the city of Jerusalem in Paul's time. But this is the tale of two cities. There's another city where all believers can call home. It's not a symbol of the old covenant under Moses. It's the symbol of a new covenant in Jesus. It's not Jerusalem which now is, but it's the Jerusalem above. It's not the city of bondage, but it's the city of freedom. It's not the place of terror and trembling. It's the place of joy and life. If you would like to make that place your heavenly home, here's what you must do. First of all, acknowledge that you're a sinner. The Bible says whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and the wages of sin is death. That's a bad paycheck. You need to change your master and your employer. We must repent, turn from our sins and self-righteousness, turn to someone else for salvation. And that someone else is Jesus. He is God and man at the same time, lived a perfect life and surrendered that life to save us. He died on the cross as our substitute, paying the eternal penalty of sin in our place. He was buried and rose from the dead. He gave many proofs of his finished work and his resurrection before ascending to heaven. He will return someday to judge all mankind. Now the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There's nothing we can do to earn our way into heaven. We're saved by grace, God's grace, not by our works. I like how the modern hymn from Sovereign Grace, Not in Me, summarizes this truth. No list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue. No list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. O God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. It's only through faith in Christ alone 
by grace alone, that we find freedom from sin and freedom from the bondage of the law. And that liberty brings us lasting joy. Paul's citation of Isaiah 54 verse 1 gives us a glimpse of that joy we'll find in the restored Jerusalem. I'll get a little technical with prophecy here, but now Isaiah in that chapter primarily describes the millennial kingdom Jesus establishes upon his return. But there's continuity between the millennial kingdom and the eternal state. You can say heavenly joy characterizes both. There's happiness in Jerusalem as Jesus comes down in his return and builds the temple. There's also happiness in Jerusalem coming down from heaven from God, the one without a temple. Either way, that happiness is similar to the joy of a mother, the one who was once barren, desolate, and without a husband, now bears many children. And that's where we're headed. That's our destiny. Do you think about it? Is Sunday the only time you think about heaven? I encourage you to take the bulletin home. Sing about the Jerusalem that we're headed towards. Emmanuel's land. Right? The new heaven where we're going to say, all glory be to Christ. Sing these things. Be joyful. We can rejoice in our freedom as we're heaven-bound. But while we're still on earth, we're not home yet, and we should not feel at home yet. We're still in enemy territory. And the Bible warns us plenty about persecutions here. Philippians 1.29, It has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. We are not of the world, but Jesus chose us out of the world. Therefore, the world hates us. John 15, 19 says that. Our Lord warns us, and he also comforts us in John 16, 33. In the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And that leads us to the second outcome of living as free children. Endure persecution from the law-bound Again, we have verses 28 and 31 essentially stating one same idea in two different ways. We are like Isaac as children of promise. We are unlike Ishmael and the children of the bondwoman. And we just discussed how there's an occasion for celebration and joy, not only there and later, but here and now. And that joy need not be spoiled by those who persecute Christians. And we're not only targets of the world at large. In verse 29, Paul speaks of a more specific persecution from those who are bound by the law. Let's read it again. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. So back to Genesis for a second. We read in Genesis 21, that once Isaac grew up and he was weaned, probably around the age of three, the parents threw a party. And during the festivities, Ishmael scoffed at Isaac. 
We're not sure exactly what he said to the toddler. Maybe Ishmael became jealous of all the attention going to Isaac. And so perhaps he said something along the lines of, I'm the firstborn and I'm dad's favorite. This is your day, but wait until I get my inheritance. You'll serve me and learn to respect your older brother. Maybe he said that. Whatever Ishmael said to Isaac, it was serious. Paul calls it persecution. It wasn't two rowdy kids arguing at the table, fighting over a toy. Isaac's a few years old, and Ishmael was nearing adulthood. Ishmael is getting older, and he poses a threat to Isaac's future. Sarah perceived this problem, and and we read what she says to Abraham in verse 30, cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Whereas Sarah was wrong to recruit her maid in Genesis 16, she was right to send her away with her son in Genesis 21. It was hard for Abraham, as he has grown attached to Ishmael, But God confirms the decision, and he also provides for Hagar and Ishmael. Paul stops the story here, and we have the moral of the story. We are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So knowing our identity is important when we face persecution. We go back to that phrase in verse 29. Even so, it is now. The apostolic church, and especially Paul, faced violent persecution from his fellow Jews. And at other major times in history, legalism has reared its ugly head and opposed God's free children. We think of the Roman Catholic doctrine of salvation that confuses grace and works. Even among Protestants, some uphold human traditions as equal or close to equal in authority to the scriptures. That's to our shame. Legalists will exist in different forms, and different times, different places. All of them oppose God's children and try to bring them under bondage. Whether you're an early Christian thousands of years ago, a Protestant, a Puritan a few centuries ago, or a believer today fighting legalism. Remember who you are. We are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. We are the children of the promise. We belong to that heavenly Jerusalem filled with joy. We will not be cast out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Saints, endured the attacks of legalism and resist their doctrines. When someone imposes restrictions on you and claim to be from God, always check the Bible. We've had people come into this church saying that they're a prophet and saying they have authority from God. One told my wife, Iray, to take off the earrings. I'll talk to you about that later if you want to know more about it, but that was kind of weird. When someone imposes restrictions on you and claim to be from God, always check the Bible. 
Be like the Bereans in Acts 17, 11. They received the word, but also searched the scriptures to make sure what was said to them were true. Like them, only bind yourself to what's binding in the Bible. That'll give us the strength to endure persecution from the law bound. I know that there's a lot of theoretical concepts talking about the contents of the gospel. And we'll talk more about our Christian liberty, about the practical, more about practical things as we move to the third and final major portions of Galatians. For now, here's a preview from chapter 5, verse 1. Lord willing, we'll look at this verse next week. But it says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. We'll start with this verse next week, Lord willing. For now, I think it's fitting to sing about the truths we just studied. We'll turn to our final song. As we do, think about that holy city built by God's own hand. Worship Christ who has the power to break the chains of sin and death. Declare together, we will stand as children of the promise. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that as we think about the gospel, Lord, it's not something that's spontaneously given to us. But Lord, you had a plan. And Lord, even from the book of Genesis, Lord, you had this plan from the beginning of time to save us. And Lord, we know that the law was given so that we, it would drive us to your son, to redemption in Christ, to the gospel. And the law itself speaks of the gospel, and we're thankful for that. And Lord, we have this freedom in Christ that we can enjoy. And Lord, teach us what that means this week. Lord, we may put on our identity as a father, a mother, a husband, a worker, an employee, a boss. But Lord, the most important identity is how you relate to us and how we relate to you. We are free children in the gospel of liberty. May that cause us such deep joy that whatever comes our way, that we're practically impervious to the troubles of life. Of course, we know that things will be difficult, so we pray for endurance as well. Lord, we know that the world does not want to see us enjoy the liberty in Christ. Those who are bound would like to see us bound as well to steal away the joy that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. So we do pray that as we go our separate ways, that we remind ourselves of the truths of your word, bind ourselves to it, and live free in the Spirit. Pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.